Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. It's great to be in God's house this morning, isn't it? It's great to be worshipping the King of Kings. What a privilege it is. Have you ever, have you ever stopped and considered the blessing that it is to, to know that we have the privilege of not only following God, but to know Him intimately as our best of friends? We come to the end of our, not the end of our series, but the end of our parts. This is part number four on the feast. We've been going through the, the feast of the, the Levitical calendar that you see in the book of Leviticus that the Jewish people used to celebrate. Uh, we've been look, I wish I could show you the diagrams, but I stuffed up last night. I uploaded my, um, my PowerPoint. It took a little while to upload, and I forgot to actually send it. So it's home on my laptop, uploaded, but I still need to press send. So you won't have a PowerPoint today, which I apologize for. But you're just going to have to use your imagination as I explain what was on the PowerPoint. So before we go any further, I'm going to need a lot of help because I don't have a PowerPoint. I have sermon notes, but um, let's just pray first that God will lead us in our Bible study. Father in heaven, we come to you here this morning praying that you will lead us. Your word tells us that when we ask in the name of Jesus, we shall receive. Father, we want the Holy Spirit, not to use it for, for selfish ambition, but that we may draw nearer to you, that we may understand and comprehend the things of heaven, Father. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and Father, the scriptures are inspired of God and we need the Holy Spirit to understand those inspired words. Father, may you speak through me, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a bit of a summary because I know that there's been a, there's been a bit of break in, in, in the presentations from part one to part two, part three, now we're in part four. So just a, a quick review of what we've looked at so far. We've looked at, the, at six of the seven Levitical feasts. So we've looked at Passover. Passover represents Jesus' death. Then we looked at the Feast of um, Unleavened Bread, which represents Jesus resting in the tomb on, on, on the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Then we looked at Jesus um, and the Feast of First Fruits and how Jesus ascended to heaven. And then we looked at the, the Feast of Pentecost as Jesus was anointed as high priest to begin his high priestly ministry in the courts above which had tremendous effects on the disciples, the apostles, as they were gathered in that upper room. The anointing in heaven translated to an anointing on earth because what happens in heaven affects earth. Do you believe that, church? What happens up there, what Jesus is doing now, affects what happens down here, or it ought to. And it must. And then we looked at the Feast of Trumpets. And what you actually find that's really amazing in the Levitical Feast, the calendar of the Feast, is that it's according to the agricultural year. Do you guys remember me talking about that last time? It's according to the agricultural year. And so you have the springtime feast, which is the Passover, the unleavened bread, the first fruits, and, and Pentecost, those four feasts there. They're in the springtime. And then you have this break in the seasons, and you find yourself in the autumn feasts. Now, the autumn feasts are those at the end of the agricultural year, around the time of harvest, which has huge anti-typical fulfillment. When you think of where we are in Earth's history, we're in the time approaching harvest, aren't we? And we're going to have a look at some of the language that Jesus employs concerning this later in the sermon. But the feasts that we've just looked at in the springtime are separated. And then we have the feasts in the autumn time. And we looked at the feasts of trumpets three or four weeks ago. 
And how we find the fulfillment of that is Jesus in Revelation chapter 10 comes down with an unsealed message to give to his people at a certain time in earth's history that is to go to the world. And what message do we call this church? It's the Advent message, this Adventist movement that we saw that was born out of a Millerite movement went to proclaim the soon coming of Christ, which then eventuated in an Advent message and the three angels' messages that God has entrusted us to people. And the trumpets, the Feast of Trumpets, foreshadowed or came before the Day of Atonement, the Feast of the Day of Atonement. And so this Advent message went forth in the 1830s, and then after they had finished, guess what we entered into? Guess which feast Jesus fulfilled? He fulfilled the Feast of the Day of Atonement as he went into the most holy place to begin his to begin his final work of cleansing his people before he comes. Very, very important phases in the ministry of Christ, and all of them have to do with Jesus. All of them have to do with Jesus. I want to emphasize that point, church. How much, how much of Scripture, how much of these Levitical feasts have to do with Jesus? Partly or wholly? Wholly. The answer is Jesus, 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 our doctrine, our understanding, the scriptures are centered in Christ from beginning all the way through to the end. And let me emphasize this. Let me emphasize this point because I think it does need to be emphasized that I am not misinterpreted. Our understanding of creation is centered in Jesus. Our understanding of Jesus' judgment is centered in Jesus. Our understanding of the second coming is centered in Jesus. I'm going to say this this morning, and I want you to know where I stand, church, on this matter. I believe that the teachings of Scripture, and I believe the teachings of the Seventh Day Adventist Church, which align from Scripture, they're not, they're not, um, I guess, drawn out in a vacuum that we come up with these 28 fundamentals that are separated somehow from Scripture. But what we believe as a church is founded in Scripture, church. When, we say, when I say the 28 fundamentals, I'm not talking about these abstract things that can't be um, proven from Scripture, but something that we find in the very heart of Scripture. That wasn't the case. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a minister of this church. It's all Jesus. Doctrine is Jesus. I, I actually encourage you to do this. I actually encourage you to, to, to go and do a word search of the word doctrine in Scripture and see how many times it comes up in the New Testament and see how important it is. It's all Jesus. All these feasts are Jesus. They all find their fulfillment in him. And let me just go through it very, very quickly. Passover, Jesus dies. The unleavened bread, Jesus rests. Um, the first fruit, Jesus ascends. Pentecost, Jesus is anointed. The Feast of Trumpet, Jesus unseals. The Day of Atonement, Jesus cleanses. And then we come to the final feast, which is the last feast in the Levitical year. The final feast in the agricultural year, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when Jesus dwells with his people. Don't you think it's remarkable that it all happens according to the way that God has ordained? That God has mapped it out in advance and given it to his people of old. And we can look back in hindsight and say, yes, that was fulfilled according to the will of God. Yes, that was fulfilled according to the will of God. And if that has been fulfilled, and if that has been fulfilled, then God will surely fulfill the final portions of that which he has promised to do. Do you believe it, church? I believe with every fiber of my being. The beautiful thing is that Jesus did not ransom us merely to leave us here. He did not save us to forsake us. 
I'll give you a situation, a scenario. You just imagine this. You guys all know the Chilean um, miners that were trapped a number of years ago. Have you guys heard that story? Those miners, I think there was 33 or so miners that were trapped 700 metres underground as the, as the mine collapsed in on itself. And they had a shelter and they had supplies and food for, for a small period of time. And so they rationed that. Do you know how long it took before they got any, any word from the outside? In pitch darkness. It took two weeks. You imagine how helpless you would feel. Would you feel helpless? Completely and utterly cut off from anything and everyone. And you can't communicate with the outside world. You don't know if somebody's coming to save you. But then just imagine hearing this noise, this burring noise, for a couple of days. And it's getting closer and closer and closer. How would you feel? You would think salvation is coming. And so two weeks into the whole episode, they finally break through with the drilling. And they give them supplies, but they're not ready to take them up yet. It takes, well, it took two weeks to reach them, but it's actually 69 days before they're actually out on the surface again. And they make this capsule, and so the hole is a, is a certain size now, and they build this, this capsule, and they put a rescuer in the capsule, and they send him down. You guys may be able to follow the, the salvific implications here. They send him down to the darkness. And as it comes into the darkness, this cavern, this cave, the people are groping in darkness. He comes out. Imagine if his message was, guys, well, I think you've got everything sorted here. I'm going to go back up, stay put for a while. And he goes back up and he never goes back down again. What would you think? Yeah. I mean, what would you think? That they would expend so much effort, energy, money, and then just leave them there. Is that what happened, church? They put every single one of those miners in there, one after the other, until all of them were on the surface again. Jesus did not come the first time in order not to come the second time. What would be the point of Jesus coming in his first advent if he wasn't going to come in the second advent? He hasn't left us in darkness. He's given us the gift of his spirit and the gift of each other, but he promises that he will come again to us. Our message is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all wrapped up in him. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 5. I want to read you the words of Jesus and what he has to say about the sanctuary. John 5 and verse 46. These are the words of Jesus. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. He's in this big dialogue of the fourfold witness of God. And his final witness is the word of God. What Moses had taught, what Moses had passed on to his people. You've got to understand that the scribes and the Pharisees, they esteemed Moses in such a way that they had memorized all of his writings. So if I said to them, let's just imagine one of them was here this morning, we, we got them to start recounting for us word by word from Genesis chapter 1. By the time I finished my sermon, they would be up to a certain point in one of Moses' book, just, just from memory. They knew this stuff. And Jesus looks at these Levitical leaders, he looks at these scribes, he looks at these Pharisees, and he challenges them with this. In verse 46, this is what he says. For if you believed who? Moses. You would believe me. Because he what? Because he wrote about me. I want you guys to be totally honest here this morning. Have you ever read the book of Leviticus? And thought, man, Jesus is everywhere here. You have to do a lot of digging, don't you? But is he there? 
Jesus says, Moses wrote about me in the book of Leviticus. So if I said to you this morning, let's turn to the Gospel of Leviticus, would you turn with me there? We're not going there now. But Jesus said, Moses wrote the story about me in the book of Leviticus. That's pretty powerful. And so when we take the entirety of Scripture and we take what Jesus said here, Jesus said the foundation of the sanctuary system is founded on me from beginning to end. So there's no doubt as to why we, we, we actually see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover land. Well, we actually see Jesus anointed as high priest in the heavenly courts above, and that has implications on Pentecost. There's no, there's no doubt as to why when Jesus goes into his final phase of ministry before he comes, he has a special message for his church. There's no, there's no doubt as to why when Jesus comes again, he will finish, he will fulfill that final feast promise, the Feast of Tabernacles, which was centered around God dwelling with his people. Beautiful stuff. I actually want you to think about it for a moment, church. The great desire from God from beginning to end is centered around this one principle, this one truth. God wants to be with us. You see it in the Garden of Eden when he was with Adam face to face. You then see it as he instituted the sanctuary system that he could dwell amongst his sinful people. You then see it as... Emmanuel, God with us, comes, lives, and tabernacles with us in the flesh, Jesus Christ himself. And then when Jesus leaves, what does he promise? He promises the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit dwell? In us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. From beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, God wants to be with his people, and he's doing everything possible to get to us. He's drilled. He's come down to the very depths of humanity to speak life to us. And he promises that he will come again to take us to be with him, that we will never be separated anymore. Is it a beautiful message that we have, church? Is it a beautiful hope that God has given us? I want you to think about it for an instance here, just a moment. Because I want you to listen to the rest of my sermon. But I want you to think about what it will be like when you see Jesus face to face. What will it be like where you look into his face, where you see his countenance, where you get to speak to him and hear his words? I want you to think about that. What will you do? What will be the first words that you say? I'll tell you one thing I'll be doing. I'll be celebrating. I'll be rejoicing. I'm not a huggy, touchy-feely kind of guy, but I can imagine myself hugging him. And I can imagine myself not wanting to let go. To know him, even as I'm known, to see him face to face, there will be a celebration. And it's interesting, in the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a feast of celebration, church. Just as when Jesus comes again to take us home, it's a celebration. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, 23 and verse 16. Exodus 23 and verse 16. This is talking about the feast of tabernacles here, but it gives it a different spin, a different name. He calls it the Feast of the Ingathering. And so in Exodus 23 and verse 16, this is what Moses writes. He says this, And the Feast of Harvest, the firstfruits of your labours, which you have sown in the field, and the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labours from the field. 
you get this picture of them resting from their labors. All throughout the agricultural year, they had been busy in looking after the crop, watching over it, protecting it, um, cultivating it, and then there comes the harvest time where they harvest, it's put into the barn, and they rest from their labors. When Jesus comes again, church, do you think we rest from our labors? Why do we rest from our labors? Because harvest has taken place. The harvest has come. And you see this in the language of Jesus in some of his parables, the parable of the wheat and tares, where we see that at harvest time, both of them are harvested, and the wheat is taken, it's gathered, and where is it placed? It's placed in his barn or his storehouse, which represents his kingdom. And then the tares, they are gathered and they are bundled for an appointed time. When is that time? The destruction of the wicked. And so we see this separation at harvest, that the fruits manifested in the righteous are fully seen and they're harvested. The works of the flesh are fully manifested in the wicked and they're harvested as well. They're placed in different places. They have different rewards. But we see this principle of harvest the end of the agricultural year. You don't plant a seed with no intention to receive the fruits of what you've planted. Unless you're just strange. But if you're planting a vegetable or a fruit, there's intention behind it all because you want to receive the fruits of what you've planted. I mean, you think about it. Through the seed of the woman, Christ was to come. What was the purpose of Christ coming? That he would redeem us, that he would save humanity. And at the end of all things, the consummation of all things, we will be with him and we will see him face to face as we are harvested. Turn with me to Revelation 14. I want to show you this in the book of Revelation. Jesus is coming in the clouds of glory and he has something in his hand. In Revelation 14 and verse 14. He's coming in the clouds at the end of all things. He's coming to take his people home to himself. Is everybody there? I just love the sound of pages flicking. And so I would prefer to make my sermon a little bit longer just so I can hear that. It's, it's good. Let's read this. 1414 of Revelation says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man. Man, I just love that title of Jesus. I've told you enough, though. Having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. What's the purpose of a sickle, church? To harvest. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Who's sitting on the cloud? Jesus Christ. He says, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap. For the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was I'm looking forward to that. I really am. It really excites me. You know, this is a celebration, church, not just because our work is done. It's a celebration not just because we go and we inherit that which God has prepared for us. It's not just a celebration because we get to go home, but it's a celebration because God has been faithful to his promises. The promise that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden when they still had the taste of the fruit in their mouth, that there was a promised deliverer who was come, is finally actualized. That's what the celebration is. 
Although the years have been long and although humanity has gone through so much, God has overcome. God is love. Every animate and inanimate object will declare that truth. If you read the end of Great Controversy, that's how it finishes. In fact, if you read the beginning of the Conflict of Ages series, Patriarchs and Prophets, you want to know how it starts? God is love. You want to know how it finishes? God is love. They're the two bookends in which you look at that whole narrative of Scripture. That was in question when Satan held accusations against God. You are not a God of love. When we look at the course of history and how God has worked his plan of salvation in our lives and in humanity's life, there will be no doubt in anyone's mind or on anyone's lips that the fact that God is love. It's a celebration, church. Why is it a celebration? Because we remember what God has done. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 23. This is what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus 23 verse 40. Turn with me to the Gospel of Leviticus. Leviticus 23 and verse 40. Let's read it for a second. It says this. And you shall take... This is what happened at the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, You shall take for yourselves on the first day of that feast the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, the willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in the booths for seven days. All you who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in the booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so what they would do is they would converge on Jerusalem and they would make these booths or these dwelling places or these tabernacles and they would dwell in them. And what was the purpose of dwelling in them, church? What were they remembering? When they were wandering through the wilderness for all those years, God provided for them. Their sandals did not wear out. Their clothes did not wear out. He brought them to the place that, that he promised although it was a roundabout way because of their own choices and decisions, they finally got there. And as they dwelt in those booths every year, it was one of those, those sacred assemblies where they were all required to go there, they would celebrate and remember what God had done for them. I want you to think about it for a second. When you get into the kingdom, this whole sermon is on heaven. This is a heaven sermon. One of those good ones. When you get to heaven... And you recount the way that God has led you in the past. Do you think you'll be overawed? Do you think that you will be able to summon the most difficult experiences of your life? Because when they recounted at the Feast of Tabernacles their past history in God's dealing, they did not recount the difficult times or the trials or tribulations. They recounted the blessings of God. In fact, I believe that when we get to the kingdom, you will try to summon the deepest, darkest moments of your history and you will not be able to remember them for this very reason. Because the exceedingly great joy that is before you drowns everything else out. Why? Because there will be no feelings of discontent again. 
And you'll try to summon those thoughts, and it tells us in early writings that you would not be able to remember those sorrows. And the motif that's used in this, in this passage about Egypt and God's deliverance from Egypt isn't something that just has significance for the ancient Israelites. I want you to think about it, because the ancient Israelites, they were slaves, they were in bondage, they had no control, they had no power over themselves, they had no free will. They were subject to slavery. Are we slaves, church? Have we been slaves? Yes, we have. Slaves to what? Slaves to sin. And just as the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, they were delivered by what? Was it the plague of locusts that delivered them? What was the one plague that delivered them from Egypt? It was the blood of the Passover lamb. The only way in which you can be saved from the slavery of sin is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we see this significance in their ancient type where they celebrated the Feast of Booths. When we get to the kingdom and we dwell, we tabernacle with God, we will rejoice in His deliverances and what He has done for us. Wonderful. I want you to think about it for a moment here. The Judean captives, when they left Babylon after the 70 years of captivity, under the time of Nehemiah, they went back home, Jerusalem, God's holy dwelling place. And they rebuilt the walls of the city. And guess what they did after they rebuilt the walls of the city? Guess what they celebrated? The Feast of Tabernacles. They'd come home. Turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. I want to show you this. This is really cool. Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm going to test you guys now. Turn with me to Nehemiah. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Chapter 9 and verse... Actually, chapter 8 and verse 17. It says this. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from their captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the day of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Why was there such great gladness? Is this kind of gone off a bit? Is this better? Grab the red one on. Okay. Why was there such great gladness? You think about it. They came from captivity. They returned from Babylon. They went to the place that God had prepared for them. As a people, they rebuilt the walls and then they had the feast and there was great rejoicing. The reason why I think there was great rejoicing is because the greater the trial is, the greater the deliverance is, and the greater the deliverance is, the greater the joy is. Okay, it's good now. Did you bump it? <laughs> The reason why they celebrated in such a way is because they had drunk the bitter cup of affliction for so long. And when you read in Hebrews chapter 11, you see what God's people have gone through throughout the ages. They had been tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, tempted, slain, wandered, were destitute, were afflicted and tormented. But in all their sufferings, the present world made, through the deliverance of God, their afflictions all the sweeter. Because they realized that in Christ and through his deliverance, although the bad was bad, the deliverance is even greater yet. I want to say this this morning to those who are suffering in our congregation. 
to those who are going through something, maybe known and unknown. But although at this very present moment in time you may be beset with pain, affliction, the vicissitudes of life have overtaken you. And you don't know who to turn to, you don't know what to do, you're suffering in silence. I want to encourage you here this morning to hang on. To persevere in Jesus' name and don't give up. Because the morning will come where all those troubles of soul will vanish into nothingness and you will be presented, you will experience exceedingly great joy which God has prepared for you from the foundation of your world, from the world. Your current plight is not your eternal reality. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and keep moving forward. Because there will come a day where God will wipe away how many tears? All tears. There will be no sickness, pain or hurt. All those former things have passed away. And guess what happens to everything else? It's all made new. Hang on in there. Our King does come. And think about it as well. Just as God's ancient people left the captivity of Babylon, went to Jerusalem and celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, so too God's remnant people are called out of Babylon. They come into the new Jerusalem and what do they celebrate? The feast that God has prepared. Isn't it powerful? I want to give you an illustration. I had pictures up on the screen, but you won't see it now. There are people who live all around the world that live in absolute poverty, abject poverty, that don't have the things that we have. And so I want to paint a scenario for you. There are families in the world today that actually live in rubbish dumps. They were born, and I'm not just using that as you know, a description of where they're living. They actually live in, at the tip. That's all they've known. They were born there, they live there. If they want to find food, they go and scavenge the freshly dumped you know, rubbish that's been placed there. Hopefully there's food in there that they can eat. This is all that they know. Think about it like this for a second. Imagine. Imagine going to a family that's living here and giving them first-class tickets. Emirates. It's pretty high up. First-class tickets to Australia. You then pick them up from the airport, you take them, I mean, from the tip, you take them to the airport, and then they board the plane, they get priority the whole way, there are people serving and waiting on them, and they walk into where they're staying, and this isn't just first class, this is first class, first class. And there's a, there's a, there's a king-size bed there. You, every possible, everything that you could possibly imagine that could satisfy yourself on a plane flight was there. They have a shower, they have a jacuzzi. I mean, I'm just using this for the sake of you know, my illustration. I'm exaggerating a lot. But imagine it's there. They're experiencing this. They think, man, this is really good. I wish we could live on this plane. But then they touch down in Sydney Airport and they hop, hop off the plane and they go out the front of the airport. They're getting priority the whole way and then a limousine turns up. They all hop into the limousine. The limousine then takes them to Bondi Beach. And then they're given the keys to a penthouse suite. Four levels. Every possible modern convenience you could imagine is there at their fingertips. They're then told that they have five chefs who will wait on them and they will have food available on the table 24 hours a day. They just need to go and they've got that food. 
It ain't even a black credit card. What does a black credit card mean? <laughs> Unlimited. And then they're given the keys to their cars, plural. First one's a Porsche, next one's a Lambo, and last one's a Ferrari. That's how they get about. They're given a whole wardrobe. And then out in the bay you say, hey, there's a captain waiting for you out in the bay. It's a, and he's, he's the captain of a 590 foot long super yacht, the longest in the world. It's solely there for you. Has a helicopter pad on it, has a pool, probably has a bowling alley in there as well. Anything you can think of. That's your yacht, go, go, go have fun. And they have this for a week. And when the week expires, you then go up to them and say, okay guys, here's your return ticket. It's economy. We're sending you back. How do you think they would react? What do you think? You wouldn't want to go, would you? I guarantee you that they weren't completely happy with what they had before. But they were content. But now after they've experienced the excesses of life to then tell them to go back, that would make it a whole lot worse, wouldn't it? Because those memories, those experiences, those smells, those tastes, everything that they had when they had it all is now fresh in their mind and they just can't get rid of it. You know what I think about this illustration? We live in a beautiful part of the world, don't we? But in comparison to heaven, it's a rubbish dump. And sometimes our castle, we esteem it so greatly, but in comparison to what God has prepared for those that love him, it's nothingness. The children of Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, did they erect any physical structure, any permanent physical structure? No, they didn't. They dwelt in tents. But when they went through the Jordan River to the land flowing with milk and honey, they built homes and they established vineyards and they dwelt in the land that God had prepared for them. Church, we are not on the other side of the Jordan yet. But sometimes we act as if we are. And we make this world our home. And we forget that our home isn't here, but it's the hereafter. Only when your feet touches those streets of gold have you made it into the kingdom that God has prepared. I'm not saying that you can't have the assurance of salvation now. But I'm saying don't squat here as if it's a permanent location for you. God has prepared a place for you. Don't settle for second best when you can have the very best. Because heaven is going to far beyond your, your wildest dreams or imaginations. It's where your greatest sorrows in this life are transformed for God's irrepressible joys that he has for his children. Every desire of your soul, every pure desire of your soul will be fully satisfied in Jesus. This is what it says in early writings. This is what heaven is going to be like when we arrive there. We arrive in heaven and Jesus with his, his victorious, righteous right hand, which he uses to save humanity. It's a motif in the Old Testament. He's going to place something on your head. He's going to place a crown on your head. Everybody's crown is different. But that's your crown. He'll give you a new name that symbolizes your sufferings and your life and your journey on this world. That perfectly captures it. He'll thrust open those pearly gates and they'll swivel probably on their diamond hinges. And you will walk into the kingdom and you won't feel bad for possessing it. 
you will feel perfectly comfortable possessing that which God has prepared. You will feel as if it is your right through Jesus to be there. You won't feel the shame. You will see the tree of life near the river of life that, sh- that flows from the throne of, of God. And on either side of the river, the, the tree grows up and the canopy meets in the middle and the trunk is transparent gold. And there's 12 fruits on that tree every month. And it is your right to go and eat from the tree of life. Imagine what the fruit will be like. Who likes mango? Yeah? Just imagine the biggest, plumpest mango you've ever, ever seen. And then times that by a thousand. It's going to be amazing. Imagine the streets of gold. The mansions that Jesus says that he's prepared for us. The animals are tame. The Bible says that the, the lion will eat grass like the ox. To go up to an, an animal of a great size, an elephant or a lion, and have it not run away from you. Imagine going up to a flower and picking the flower, knowing that it would never die. Going to the tree and picking some fruit and knowing that it would never go old. Imagine this church, imagine going to the banquet, the feast in heaven that Jesus says that we will go to on that day and sitting down at the banquet table of our Lord. Just go with me there for a second, church. Just imagine that. Exercise your imaginations with me. Imagine sitting at that table, the feast of the Lord, which Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room, where he says, I will not drink the cup of the vine until I drink it with you new in the kingdom. Imagine him then pouring that very cup and saying, cheers. And you're sitting on this table and it's a silver, silver table and it goes for miles long. And you can see all the way through to the end. And you can have a conversation with somebody on the very end as if they're sitting right next to you. Imagine the first worship service in heaven. Who's going to do the announcements? Who's going to do the welcome? Who's going to lead out of the special item? You ain't heard nothing yet until you hear the angelic choir. And then imagine who's going to take the first message. Imagine Jesus standing and preaching. Preaching to us. If you miss heaven, you miss everything. But church, I can, I can express all these wonderful things that will be in heaven. But you want to know what the greatest thing is? Revelation 21 verse 3. Revelation 21 and verse 3. I want you guys to read this. If you have Bibles, open up and and look at this with me. Your your eyes need to see this. Revelation 21 3. Scripture reads this. This is John. After seeing this in vision, he said, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Sometimes we read things quite casually. But I want to emphasize this for impact. The tabernacle of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men. The tabernacle of God is with men. He's with us. Don't let... Don't let the the casualness of the way that we often read Scripture just 
and, and lose the significance of what this actually means. We see Him. We're with Him. We're never to be separated from Him again. And what is this alluding to, church? This is alluding to the Feast of Tabernacles, where they came and they dwelt in booths. But here it says, Now the tabernacle of God is with me. And then jump with me to verse 6, because this alludes to it as well. Jesus says this. The angel says this. He says, It is done. I am the Alpha, Jesus said. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. You know, I'm closing on this thought. When Jesus went to the Feast of Tabernacles, you know that Jesus actually went to a Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7? You can read about it. And when he went to this great feast, his brothers were pressuring him to go, but he says, my hour has not yet come. But he finds, he, he finds his way there, he's there, because God wanted him to be there. And so the Feast of Tabernacles went for the days, the appointed days, and on the last day there was a special tradition that really had huge symbols, where the priest would go and with a, with a basin he would draw water from the Kedron River, he would, and then he would take it in the assembly of everybody who was watching on. Everyone had converged on Jerusalem. They were all partaking in this ceremony. And he would take that water into the temple, into the court of the temple. And there was a place prepared where there was two bowls, one with water and one with wine. And as he was walking up the steps, as he was slowly walking up the steps to the sound of the trumpet, this was the verse that would be quoted he would be chanting this verse, Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. <laughs> Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O new Jerusalem. As he gets to the place where the basins are, he pours the water into them, and then he takes the other basins that have everything together, and he pours it into um, a, a channel that runs into the Kevin River that then runs to the Dead Sea, which is reminding them of how the, how the God of Israel gave them the living water as they wandered through the wilderness. And it's in this context that Jesus says these very words at the Feast of Tabernacles, which would have made a deep impression upon those who were there in John chapter 7. And I close with this. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus stands up on that last day of the feast and he says these words, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Are you longing to be satisfied? Are you looking for something more? Jesus satisfies. Jesus quenches every thirst. Jesus satisfies every need. And just as Jesus stood on that day and he said, if anyone thirsts, come to me and you will drink of that water. So too on that final day when we enter into God's kingdom, he says, if anyone thirsts, I will give him to drink from the fountain of life, which is drawn from the river of life. And it touches your lips and it quenches your deepest thirst. And you'll say, surely heaven is cheap enough. Soon, church, we shall arrive on the banks of the Jordan River. Soon our wandering shall come to an end. Soon the saints will go marching in. 
Soon the trumpet shall sound. Soon we shall be free from our captivity. Soon we shall go in and go out no more. Soon we shall meet him in the air. Soon we shall eat the fruit from the tree of life. Soon we shall sit at the table of our Lord. Soon we shall drink of the cup that has been barreled up from the foundation of the world. Soon all our tears, all of our sorrows shall be no more. Soon the tabernacle of God will be with men. Soon type will meet anti-type in complete fulfillment. Soon God will be with us. Soon we shall go home. Father in heaven, we long for the day that we see you face to face. We know that we are at the borders of Cain and that we will soon pass that Jordan River and we will receive the inheritance that you have for us. We will see you in whom our soul delights. We will know you as we're known and we will love you in the fullness of our being. Father, we know that we are on the wrong side of Canaan now though. And Father, we know that there are temptations, struggles, perplexities, adversities that we must all encounter. It's our lot. But we know that you are always with us, that you'll never leave us and that you'll never forsake us. For those, that are, those who are struggling here this morning, I pray that you may buoy their spirits, that they may focus on the promises of your word and the assurity of your faithfulness, that you will come and right every wrong and everything will be made. And give them the assurance of that. May you be ever before them. And Father, for all of us here this morning, I pray this as well, that you may be ever before all of us. That we may not turn aside from that which you have prepared. That we may not settle for second best when you have the very best for us. And that all the saints in this facility here this morning may go marching in on that day when you yourself, Jesus, Thrust open those pearly gates and those diamond hinges. And you welcome us in. And we go in to claim our inheritance. For the tabernacle of God is with men. And to that, Father, we say, even so. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. This message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. Yeah.
his hands were nails scarred, his side was riven, he gave his life blood for even me, he left the Father with all his riches, with calmness sweet and Capeldridge sang, Oh, What a Savior. We hope you enjoy the short presentation of how God led His people after the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. In July of 1849, James White packed copies of the present truth into a borrowed carpet bag and walked eight miles to Middletown, Connecticut. He was taking the first steps in what would become a global publishing ministry. The publishing work was extremely effective in early Adventism, both as a form of evangelism and also as keeping a sense of cohesion amongst the believers. Prior to the great disappointment, it was very important. And after 1848, when Ellen White had her vision that her husband should start a magazine and that the paper would be like streams of light going around the world, the work increased in effectiveness. In 1853, the Review and Herald Publishing Association bought its first printing press and based itself out of the house that James and Ellen White rented in Rochester, New York. It then moved to Battle Creek, Michigan and continued to grow. And things would take a twist in the 1880s when James White met a young Canadian named George King who desperately wanted to be a preacher. He stayed with them for a few weeks, but James White was unconvinced that he had what it took to be a preacher. 
James White then approached Brother Godsmark and told him about George King and asked if he could live on the farm and work and then maybe after a year he would be able to go and preach. He was a tall and slim man and as he moved into this new home he would often preach in the living room to the empty chairs. It was soon arranged that he preached his first sermon to some of the church members but it was a blundering failure and anything but to the point. After a season of prayer, the mother of the home stood up and said that he could never be a preacher and that he could not hold the attention of a crowd, but he could be a fireside preacher and share books and tracts in people's homes and spread the message this way. He accepted this as the will of God. And the next Monday, he packed his satchel full of magazines and took $2 and set off for the week. The next Sabbath, he was overwhelmed at how much God had blessed him and encouraged by the people he was able to speak to as well as the 62 cents that he had earned. The next week, he was able to convert nearly all the books in his bag to cash and soon persuaded the brethren at the Review and Herald to make a special book to use in the homes, Thoughts on Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. And so the work of literature evangelism would start with a man who James White didn't know what to do with. The work of literature evangelism would grow and spread and become a huge ministry in and of itself, key in the early days of our church as it encompassed the globe. The ministry is still active today, both with summer programs with academy-age young people and university-age students, and also with full-time workers. The story of George King teaches us that whilst we may not be able to do the exact ministry that we have set our hearts on, God may have another work for us that we haven't even thought of yet and may use other people to guide us there. When we are humble and teachable, there is no limit to how God may use us. more episodes in the series, visit lineagejourney.com. Hi, I'm Marilyn, the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. I have a question for you. Are you playing small? Do you have ideas that you'd like to see grow into something real? But you know, you're scared. Scared to take action. What are you scared of? Perhaps you're scared to speak to encourage people. Hmm, I am. Maybe you'd think you don't look good enough. My dad used to say, my face, I don't mind it. You see, I'm behind it. It's the fella out front gets the jar. Well, is this really the fear that's stopping us from sharing ideas? No way, it isn't. Our biggest fear, wait for it, is one word. I wonder if you can guess it. Our biggest fear is judgment. Oh yes it is, there it is, judgment. What if your brother or your uncle or your big sister or your boss or your friend see you do it? They might laugh, they might ridicule, they might criticise. They might say, huh, what's she up to now? She's just a nobody. Who's going to listen to her? 
What we're really scared of in implementing an idea is how other people judge us. That's it. So my first tip for today is a simple one, and here it is. If you think you have an idea worth sharing, forget yourself. Oh, yes, indeed. Forget yourself and bless others. That's the great purpose of life, isn't it? To be a blessing. I've been thinking about how Dad helped me to learn to forget myself at one point in my life. I played a lot of piano. I loved playing and I sat a lot of exams. And I'd come up to an exam and until I was about 15 I'd be scared stiff. I'd go into the exam and I'd be frightened to face the examiner as though they were some nasty old ogre. And I'd simply be terrified and I'd whine to Dad, Dad, I'm so scared. I don't want to go to this exam. I'm not ready. I don't know enough. And blah, 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 blah. One day, when I was about 16, Dad said to me, Listen, Marilyn, stop it. You've done your practice. You know your music. You have only one job to do today. I said, Dad, what's that? He said, You walk into that exam room with your head held high. Greet the examiner with a smile, and all you have to do after that is make them happy listening to your music. Bless them and make them happy. And you know what? It worked. I realised then I was thinking all about me and worrying about their judgement of me, and I wasn't even thinking about how to make their day happy. What a thought! Make an examiner's day happy? Wow, my job was to make them love my music. Make them happy that they are an examiner. So, if you've got ideas to share, then the key is to get out of your own way, stop thinking about yourself and worrying about how you're going to be judged. Forget yourself and share those ideas. It's not up to us to worry about how our ideas will be received. Stop thinking about you and start to think about how your ideas might bless somebody else. Remember my two tips? What are they? Tip number one. If you think you have an idea worth sharing, what do you do? Two words. Forget yourself. Tip number two. Bless others with your ideas. If you will practice these tips, a lot of unnecessary fears and troubles will simply cease to exist. They'll evaporate and your life and ideas will be a blessing to others. That's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to share ideas to help make your life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.